Now comes um, the preaching charge, and so uh, we're going to dig into the scriptures just a little bit, and I'll try not to be too long, but I'm not going to make any promises. Um, you know, never to believe a pastor when he's in the pulpit telling you about how long he's going to preach. You know that, right? That's just a principle, Church Life 101. Uh, Brother Jared asked me to preach his charge, and I know that um, any one of these men would have been way more qualified than I to do this, but I appreciate the opportunity, Brother Jared, and um, the, um, the privilege it is to be able to give a charge to Brother Jared. And this, this is a message that is geared towards the pastorate. It is geared towards Brother Jared to challenge him, to encourage him, uh, but I believe everything we hear from the Word of God is for all of us. We are going to be uh, edified from what God says, I pray today. And so let me, take, let me invite you to take your Bible to the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter number 3, uh, there's two primary texts I'm going to use today. Uh, one is right here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and the other will be in 2 Timothy chapter 4 shortly. But I've titled the message this afternoon, The Noble Task of a Pastor. The Noble Task of a Pastor. And I want us to look at what Paul says here to Timothy, as we know that 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, they are pastoral epistles. They deal largely with the pastoral call and office and responsibilities and qualifications. And I want us to see and begin here in this text and read it together down through verse number 7. And I'll bring out some points that I pray would encourage us here today. Paul writing to Timothy, he says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble Task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. The ordination of a man into the gospel ministry particularly the office of a pastor. It is a very special, it's a very sacred uh, occasion. It's an occasion that is somewhat rare and not as frequent as perhaps we would like it to be. But I believe that with every ordination that we hear of, that we get a chance to participate in, it's an assurance to us that God is still calling and qualifying men to serve Him. This occasion, though it's rare, it's special, and it signifies to us that God is still working. You know, our world around us is very dreary, it's very negative, we see bad, that's what the news likes to promote, and uh, we often think that maybe the end is near, right? That's how a lot of people like to think. But I, I believe that as we look at the Scriptures and we look at what God is doing, He's still working through His churches. And He's going to continue working through His churches until Jesus comes, and that day's going to come. We don't know when, but we long for it. But until then, he's calling God men, godly men into the ministry. Now, I rejoice in that fact, and I know that you all do too. And the reason I rejoice greatly in that is because the gospel must be preached. The gospel must be preached, and churches must be cared for. 
Churches must be cared for spiritually. Where would we be today without God-called men to preach His Word and lead His people? It's something we must have. Now, God ordained the office of a pastor for the purpose that is greater that, uh, than any other office in this world. He puts it this way in Ephesians 4, verse 11 and 13. He says, He gave the apostles, He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and then He notes the shepherds and teachers. That is the office of the pastor. And He gave this office to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. There's a lot to unpack there, but I'm not going to take time to do that today. But the office of the pastor is so essential. We find at this present hour that there are many churches in our own nation that have no pastor. They have no God-called men to lead them, uh, no man there to feed them and care for them. And when churches do not have pastors, they are vulnerable. That is when the devil loves to sneak in and try to destroy if he can. Churches need pastors. But the office of the pastor is not one that is very easy to fill. Why is that? Because it requires a specific kind of man. It requires a man that meets certain qualifications certain capabilities, a man whom the Lord has made fit for that office. And when the right man does go into that office and is doing that work, I love what Paul says in our text here in verse 1. He says it is a noble task. Noble task or a good work is another way to put it. But I find it interesting that he opens this verse by saying, the same statement of reassurance that he said earlier in the book. He starts with this saying is trustworthy. We started that earlier in the book in chapter 1, and here's what he said with that, verse 15. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. That connection spoke to me. Just as Christ saving sinners is true, so also The noble work of a pastor is true. A direct connection there. It is a most excellent work. An eternal work that has effectual results that nothing else in this world can do as a result of its labor. So let me give you four main points here today. Four points. And I'll try to be succinct with them. As I was preparing this message, it was very challenging to condense it into one message. You could do a whole series on this noble work of a pastor. But I want to give you just a few overarching points to consider that may encourage us, and I pray would encourage especially Brother Jared today. Number one is this. I want us to recognize the pastor's calling. I want us to recognize the pastor's calling. About his calling, understand this. Jared, God has chosen you for this sacred work. I want you to think about that in a very individual nature. Because he doesn't choose everybody for this sacred work. He chooses certain people whom he wills. You see, the call to the ministry is the choice of our sovereign God. And ultimately, all things come down to the fact that God is the sovereign. He's the one who who governs all things in this world, in this universe. It's his. It wouldn't exist without him. He governs it. All right? He's the sovereign over all things. And therefore, when it comes to the gospel ministry, when it comes to the office of pastor, it belongs to Christ. It is His work. Now, I'm involved in this work. 
He's involved in this work. All of you men are involved in this work. The church is involved in the work of the gospel ministry. But understand chiefly that it is Christ's work. It belongs to him. He's in charge over it. And so, therefore, he has the divine prerogative to choose whom he wills to put into those ministry office positions. I used to work for my dad in his auto shop and years ago, and there were times when a particular job would come in, and I was a particular job that I would like to do. You know, I wasn't a deeply trained mechanic. I could do oil changes, change your brakes, and change your tires, right? But to me, doing the oil change is a lesser task than being able to change somebody's brakes or change the tires. And sometimes dad would bring in, a, bring in a job, and it was a tire job or a brake job, and I thought, man, I deserve to do that. I want to do that task. That's a whole lot more noble task than sweeping the shop floors. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Okay. Um, so I desired that, but it wasn't my decision to make. Sometimes, God, uh, sometimes dad would give that to uh, someone else when I thought I could have done a better job than they did. Other times he did give me the opportunity to change brakes and change tires. But the point is this, whatever he says, what happened? Why? Because he's the boss. I wasn't the boss. And when it comes to the ministry, the most important work in the world, the Lord alone is the boss, and he decides who will serve him and in what capacity. Now, the principle of God choosing his ministers is woven from beginning to end in the Bible. For example, we take the prophets of old. God told Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1, 5, He said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God made that choice for Jeremiah long before he ever took his first breath. We find the same is true of the Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter we're considering. Galatians 1, 15 and 16, Paul the Apostle says to that church of God, when he who had set me apart before I was born and called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son in me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Paul, that treacherous persecutor of Christians, that guy, that guy is saved. That guy is put into the office of apostle. Some might think, ooh, I don't know that he should be in that position. But it was God's choice, wasn't it? Beyond the ministry of apostle and prophet, which I don't believe are around anymore today, God chooses whom he wills to put into the office of pastor. Where do we see that? Well, when Paul was talking to the elders in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he tells them, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock of which the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit, has made you overseers. Do you recognize who put them in that position? The Holy Spirit has made them overseers. Now, while the church does have a role in electing its pastor, the choice of a pastor is limited to the man that God has chosen and qualified for the office. The church votes and calls in a man, but that choice is limited to whom God calls first, whom he qualifies first. And so here's what I want you to take away from this, is that knowing that God has chosen you, Jared, and all of us men of God, this very fact ought to humble us to the core. It ought to humble us and it ought to energize us. Understand, it ought to humble you because of who God is and who you are. You don't deserve this ministry, but by grace it's yours. Because of who God is, what He's called you to do, it ought to energize you because it's an eternal work.
a work that has eternal dividends, something that never fades away. God chose it for you. Not only that, under this heading, notice also that God has confirmed this sacred work to you. Not only God's chosen you, but he's confirmed it. Well, how does the person know for sure they're called to the ministry, particularly the office of a pastor? There are some varying views on how God confirms the call to the man, and I think it's best not to be overly sensational about it. We don't look for signs in the sky, or we don't hear an audible voice from heaven say, you're it. But there is a calling upon a man that is individual in nature, a calling that only that individual can perceive and know. What Paul says in our text, I think, gives us a little clarity. Verse 1, notice what he says. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer. Now, what's a key thing here? The word aspires, also translated as desires. If anyone aspires or desires the office of overseer, the office of pastor, that word, that word aspires means to seek to accomplish a specific goal. So, so Paul has in mind here a man whose desire is to fulfill the role of what it is to be a pastor. That obviously means he must already be a Christian and have some kind of understanding of what a pastor is and does. But ultimately what you see here is that his conviction in his heart is to preach the gospel and to pastor the Lord's people. This is something internal. Now where does this desire come from? See, the source of this desire uh, will determine whether, a man, whether or not a man is truly called of God or not. There are many men who look at the office of pastor today as just another profession, as if it's a career choice that I think I'm going to be a pastor the same way I'd be a doctor or a lawyer or something of that nature. It has a certain appeal to it since it's recognized and in front of the church, and especially now with social media, there's somewhat of a pop culture to pastors, which I believe can be detrimental. Some of these guys that I respect highly, wouldn't say a negative thing about them. It's just the reality of what social media has done. It can be used for good or evil. But ultimately, the office of pastors almost seem like it's some kind of a celebrity job now. But it's not. Then there's also those in the church that just want to be in charge because they think they know more than everybody else and they want attention. There's some that desire to do that just because just they want to be that guy. But I want you to understand this, that a desire to preach and pastor rooted in any other reason than to glorify God and minister whose people is a misplaced desire. You see, when the desire for ministry is pure in its purpose and it grips hold of your heart, you can be sure it is the call of God. You must preach the gospel. That's what you must do if you're called of God. You must do this. You must serve Him. You must minister to the people of God. And even when it gets tough, you still have that longing to keep going and keep preaching the gospel in one way or another. Like Jeremiah of old who said, if I, will not, if I say I will not mention him or speak any more of his name, he says, there is in my heart as it were a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I'm weary with, with holding it in and I cannot. We know Jeremiah's ministry. It was hard and tough. But he says, if I say I'm just going to stop, I can't. It's a fire in my bones. The desire of the God-called man leads him into the office of a pastor. You would not be here seeking this office, Jared, if you didn't have that confirmation in your own heart. You didn't have that desire. Number two this evening, I want us to notice the pastor's character for a moment. We see his calling. I want us to see his character. 
Jared, you must be conscious of who you are. Who you are. Who are you as a Christian? Eventually, when God blesses you with a wife and children, who are you as a husband? Who are you as a father? Who are you as a pastor? Who are you as a steward of God's ministry? Ultimately, it boils down to this. Who are you in private and who are you in public? Because both of those are essential to understand the pastoral ministry. Now, through this text, Paul lays out some specific but not exhaustive requirements for the man of God who is called to be the pastor. I want you to notice verse 2, that he says, Therefore, an overseer, and these two little words stick out to me, must be. Must be. Now, now these are, these are requirements that, that, that every man of God who has entered this office ought to seek to live his life about. He must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. As you evaluate all these requirements, there's a direct tie to the character of the man in view here. We don't have the time to expound all of them, but they reveal a pastor, about a pastor, his devotion, his discipline, his dedication, his direction, and his desires. Now, fulfilling these requirements does not happen automatically. They flow from a consistent, godly character in your personal life. They flow from a consistent, godly character in your personal life. Now, here's what I want us to understand. Who you are is more important than what you do. Who you are is more important than what you do. And understand this. The Pharisees were prominent religious leaders of their day who did a lot of religious services, but they were hypocrites. It didn't matter how they appeared outwardly. What mattered was who they really were. They were not genuine. And understand that if you are not genuinely seeking Christ, abiding in fellowship with Him, growing in grace, seeking to mortify your own works of the flesh, you will fail in living these characteristics out. You may even fool others around you by acting like you meet these, but you will not fool God because God is concerned with the heart. He's concerned with the private before He's concerned with the public. All of your Christian life and ministry flows from the condition of your heart. Someone rightly said this. Don't know who said it. But he said the minister's heart is the heart of his ministry. That's exactly true. The minister's heart is the heart of his ministry. The pastor must keep, must keep a watchful guard on his heart. This is the exhortation to every Christian. Proverbs 4.23 says, Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Every pastor in here, you understand the importance of this. You must guard your heart. Because if you don't, you are vulnerable to all forms of attack that will ultimately and can ultimately ruin the rest of your ministry. Shipwreck in ministry flows from lenience towards personal sin. Declare war on your sin. Recognize it. Don't cover it up. Recognize it and declare war on it because it's at war with you. You must mortify the works of your flesh. 
because it will keep you from having this godly character. Listen to what Paul told Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.16. Keep a close watch on yourself. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save yourself and your hearers. I take that to heart. Keep a close watch on yourself. Now, it's easy to keep a watch on others. And often when you look at others, it's easy to lift yourself up because you don't seem your, deem yourself as bad as other Christians or other pastors. Well, that pastor did this, and I haven't done that, so I must be okay. We don't compare ourselves to others. We compare ourselves to Christ. We compare ourselves to the Scriptures. This is how you keep watch. How many of us as pastors... How often do we take a moment to pause and just do a self-examination of where I'm at in my own Christian life and ministry? This needs to be a regular practice for us. Preaching to myself, too. It needs to be a regular practice for us. So Paul, he gives a good checklist here for doing that. Not only should you guard your godly character, you ought to continue to grow in godly character. I I encourage you this because I see this so often. Never think that you have arrived I see so many preachers who get arrogant and mean and nasty because they think they're better than everybody else. They've arrived. Understand, preachers, we never stop growing until we die. We never stop growing. Always seek to grow in cultivating godly character and cultivating Christian knowledge. Growing in grace is a lifelong endeavor. Always press forward in that. Being conscious of who you are. But also under this, under your character, you must also be conscious of how you live. Now these two are directly tied together. Your character directly flows into the manner of your life. You do what you do because of who you are. Now, Paul says here, you'd be above reproach. Now, that doesn't mean you're perfect, but it does mean that you have a good testimony, both in and among the church and outside of the church. All that Paul lays out here really sums up what it means to be above reproach. And he goes on to say in verse 7, he says that the pastor is to be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and into the snare of the devil. That's talking about having a good godly testimony, even outside of the church. You see, God's requirements in our text reflect the conduct of the pastor. And your conduct is going to be known both by your family, your friends, your church, and your community as you're out and about in it. Proverbs 22.1 says this, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor better than silver or gold. Now, if you had to offer up which one someone would prefer, most people would choose, oh, give me the silver, give me the gold. But God says your testimony of your name, that's worth more than all those, especially in the ministry. Spurgeon tells of a pastor who preached so well and lived so badly that when he was in the pulpit, everybody said that he ought never to come out. And when he was out of it, they all declared he ought never to be in it again. You understand, it doesn't matter how good a preacher you are, if your life outside of that is... Out of sorts, that's detrimental to the ministry. Don't be the person the people can't trust in the pulpit because they know how you live outside of the pulpit. So the Christian life, understand, it is a call to be holy. How much more so must the pastor be holy in his manner of life? Paul told Timothy, 
First Timothy 4.12, let no man despise your youth, but be what? An example. Be an example for the believers in speech and conduct and in love and faith and purity. As you live a life of holiness in the Lord, that will bring great weight to every time you step into the pulpit and declare, thus says the Holy One. So I close this point in this way. Remember this. Who you are is more important than what you do. And what you do flows from who you are. Remember that. Number three today. We see the pastor's commission. The pastor's commission. What is it the pastor's to do? Number one is this. The pastor is to minister to his family first. Now, if I was to ask you, what is the first priority in pastoral ministry, what would many say today? Well, he needs to pray, he needs to preach, he needs to study, he needs to visit the sick, visit the church. We'll get into all those things because that's part of it. But here's what we must understand. The first priority for the pastoral ministry is your own family. And when God blesses you with a wife and children, that's going to become real to you. That's the first priority. Now, where do you see this? Verse 4 and 5. What's, what's Paul say here? In the requirements of this pastoral office, he must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for the church of God? You understand that God instituted the home long before he instituted the church. That's the first institution. And how does a pastor manage his own household? Well, he does this by leading them in the Scriptures and loving them above himself. Management of the home is directly tied to management of the church. How does a pastor manage the church? By leading them in the Scriptures and loving them above himself. That is the chief thing he does in the church. This is what we must do. Ted Tripp rightly said this, the qualities of spiritual life that give the pastor credibility at home will lend the same measure of confidence to people as he serves in the church. You see, Paul indicates here that if you don't know how to manage your home first, you don't know how to manage the church. This is a requirement for the pastor. But yet today, I see that as one of the most neglected aspects of ministry. I have listened to preachers in past circles who boasted about the fact that they were so committed to Christ, they sacrificed their family for it. That's not cause for boasting, that's cause for weeping. The family is the first ministry. The pastor must first minister his home, and that comes in various ways. And Just two brief ones. His wife and children need spiritual care and guidance. Understand, you are also the pastor of those in your household, not just in the church house, but in your household. The pastor should teach them the scriptures, lead them in family worship, train them in the gospel truths, demonstrate what a genuine Christian life looks like. Don't be a preacher and godly man at church and go home and be a heathen. Be the same. Be the same. He must long for their conversion and discipleship. That is what we need for the next generation. But here's another aspect of this. His family needs to have time with him without any connection to ministry obligation. And that's the part we tend to leave out. 
A wife needs her pastor just to be her husband. Children need their pastor just to be daddy. If a pastor fails to do this, his family will come to resent both the gospel and the church. I've seen it in my own life. In their mind, they will think the ministry took away my husband. The ministry took away my dad. You see, the pastor has a holy responsibility to balance his home life and his church life with the understanding that his home is his first ministry. But secondly, in regards to his calling, or excuse me, his commission, this one, this one's fun. We all like this one, right? The pastor is to preach the word faithfully. Us preachers, that's probably our favorite one, right? Preach the word. And that is, that is part of his chief commission. It is to preach the word. It is to feed the people the word of the living God. That is what you're called to do. And Paul expounds this greatly in, in 2 Timothy 4. This is the second text I wanted to take you to. Last one, I promise. I'm quoting a lot, but there's only two we're turning to. I gave our church a, a finger workout Wednesday, so I figured I'd let you all slide today. 2 Timothy 4. Verse 1 through 5 for a moment. Notice what Paul says to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and is appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Paul tells Timothy, in light of Christ, his coming, his judgment, preach the word. By all means, this is a chief duty of the pastor to his church. He is called to be a herald. He is called to be a messenger of the whole counsel of God. Now understand, there are a lot of messages flowing out of American pulpits today that have nothing to do with the word of God. There's a lot of things flowing out of pulpits that should not be. There are many men who want to focus on their tradition or their preference or their pet topic or maybe a political persuasion or whatever the current trend is. But may I say that the only thing suitable for the pulpit is the Word of God expounded and rightly applied. That is what the people need. That is what the church needs. It is the Word of the living God. Now, I want you to understand that plainly. That is the chief purpose here. And why is that? Because only the gospel raises the dead. Only the gospel saves wretched sinners. It doesn't matter what trend or movement they're involved in. Only the gospel saves. That's it. Christ alone, Him crucified, risen, and coming again. That's the message. That's it. The gospel, that alone saves sinners, but also this, only the word of God will edify and equip your church to be the church God's called them to be. The word of God does that. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. It's not a dead book, friend. Sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit and joints and marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Understand, as a pastor, you have an unshakable message. 
something the world doesn't have. And it does something the world can't do. And we know that this word we're to preach, it's the complete canon of Scripture as we have it today. Paul's foundation for this charge is, is grounded in verse 15 and 16 of chapter 3. If you look at this same text, remember there wasn't chapter breaks a long time ago, so this is all one letter, flows together. And the foundation of preaching the word is on this principle in verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's literally God-breathed. We know the power of the breath of God, don't we? Genesis 1, out of nothing he created everything by his voice. And you and I hold the breath of God in a complete canon of scripture that he's given us. And with this breath, he creates new life in dead sinners' hearts and changes them, sanctifying them, bringing them on to glorification. Preach the text. Preach it in its context. And as long as you preach the word in its context, you have fulfilled this duty of preaching the word. You've done your job. Because that's what God's people need. And it doesn't matter really what the response is by the people. Understand this. We're not in charge of how people respond to the word of God. Paul said in verse 3, there's going to be people who are not going to endure sound doctrine. They're going to have itching ears and they want teachers that fit their passions. We see a lot of that today, don't we? Charles Spurgeon rightly said the time will come when instead of shepherds feeding the sheep, the church will have clowns entertaining the goats. Let the goats do what they want to do. We're going to keep preaching the word. Because there's sheep that God has that will respond to it the right way. And as long as you feed the sheep with accuracy and application, God's going to do his work. Understand that you trust him for that. As a young preacher, I always thought that I failed if I didn't get a good response after a sermon. Some sound theology will correct that. You haven't failed if you don't get a response you're looking for. Because God uses his word to accomplish his will in his time. He says and promises in Isaiah 55 that it will not return void, but it will accomplish that which he pleases. So understand this, Jared. Trust the word of God to do the work of God and just keep preaching the word. Another aspect of his calling and his commission is to pray for the saints regularly. You understand that along with ministering, the word of God is abiding in prayer with God. In fact, prayer actually probably would be listed first. You see, when the ministry of the needs of the early church grew and there was a demand on the apostles, they set in place servants to help with those things, and they told them what their priority would be. In Acts 6.4, he says, we'll devote ourselves to prayer, to the ministry of the word. You know what the result of that was? The result of that was the needs of the church were met because of those other servants in the church, and also the disciples multiplied. God bless the results of that. And here's what I want you to understand as a pastor, that prayer is non-negotiable for pastoral ministry. And yet I believe it is probably one of the easiest things to put off. Easiest things. Why is that? Here's why. Prayer is work and warfare at the same time. Prayer is work 
and warfare at the same time. It is labor in which you take hold of the throne of grace, seeking the presence and power of God. That is a labor, it is a laborious thing. But it is also warfare in in the fact that your flesh resists that urge to pray. Not only that, but Satan works especially hard to keep you from praying because he knows that when you pray, you're appealing to the power that's greater than him. The Almighty. Prayer. A pastor who neglects prayer is powerless, friend. You cannot let the busyness of ministry deter you from prayer. You must be dependent on prayer. Was there ever a man as busy as Jesus? Was there ever a man that we would say didn't need prayer as Jesus? What fascinates me is you look at the... and study the life of Christ, prayer was absolutely vital for him. The son of the living God. Not having a sinful flesh, but prayer was vital for him. The Bible says he would rise early in the morning while it was still dark. He would go out by himself and he prayed. Him and God praying. Pastor, pray for yourself that God will enable enable you to pastor the way you ought to. But I also want to encourage you to pray for your people. Don't just tell them you're going to pray for them. Actually pray for them. I think there's a lot of that that happens. Oh, I'll pray for you, but we never really bring their name before the Father. Pray for your people. Pray for their souls. Pray for their sanctification, for their trials, for their temptations. Pray for them routinely. Another aspect to his commission is to shepherd the flock lovingly. Now, I believe this goes without saying that if we do not love our flocks, that is evidence we do not belong as shepherds over those flocks. Because the pastoral ministry is not just a job, it's a connection with the people of God. Jesus, the great shepherd, said, I'm the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. That's love. He says in Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. If the most Christ-like thing a husband can do for his wife is to love her as Christ loves, loves the church, the most Christ-like thing a pastor can do for his church is to love them as Christ loves them. The pastor's heart must be wedded to the people of Christ that is entrusted to his care. Because the flock that you're over, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the one who shed his blood for it. They are so important to Christ. Your church is so important to Christ. Love them. Love them. You're going to find that there's going to be times some in your flock, it might be a little more challenging to display love to them. Any of us pastors understand that? But here's the reality. We have no right to love Christ's people the way we think they should be loved. We're commanded to love them regardless. You see, the pastor's love for the flock is manifested in his compassion for them and his service to them. How can you show that? Just some simple things. Pay attention to your people. Seek to know them. Try to be mindful of their trials, of their temptations. Visit your people when the opportunity presents itself. Call your people. Text them. Do your best to know what's going on in their lives so that you can pray for them and encourage them. 
If you're not diligent to be aware of the flock, of your flock, you're going to miss opportunities to minister to your flock. I understand there's times, I've had many times when a church member was in the hospital, had a procedure, I didn't find out until a week later. There's some churches, members, they're just super private. They don't want to tell nobody. But as a pastor, I would like to know because I'm supposed to pray for you. I'm supposed to be with you. Now, sometimes that falls on them just wanting to keep it a secret. Other times it falls on negligence on our part. We haven't been attentive to them. We have to be mindful of that. Shepherding involves this, loving your church this way. And lastly, in regard to the pastor's commission, why don't you understand that you are to lead the church courageously. Another important duty of this is leadership. There is such a thing as pastoral authority, while, while that authority is to be in harmony with church authority. But the pastor is the man God calls to lead the church. He set that person out front to lead the people of God. That's what the term overseer implies, engagement of oversight. The pastor oversees the spiritual state of the church and the spiritual direction of the church. And Peter instructs the elders in 1 Peter 5, 2 and 3, he tells them to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. You you can't be passive in leadership that way. You have to be active in that. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. I think Peter hits the nail on the head. I can say that confidently because it's inspired scripture, so I'm right. The pastor is to lead his people with the scriptures. He's to have godly wisdom. He is to watch over the church as both a guard and a guide. Calvin rightly said the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for driving away wolves. Leadership in the church requires courage because sometimes you're going to have to make some decisions that not everybody's going to have to be happy about. Sometimes you'll have to correct a situation that is very uncomfortable. Sometimes you'll be opposed by some who are in error, and you'll have to do what's necessary to protect your church. Leadership is the pastor's duty. So much more could be said of the pastor's commission, but let these truths sink in. Fourthly, you guys ready? Last one. Number four. I want you to think about the pastor's commitment, and I'll close with this. I promise to be shorter than the other ones. I want you to recognize the reality of pastoral ministry. And what I mean by that is that the pastoral ministry, it does not promise health, wealth, and fame. It does not promise promotions or great results that you're going to be able to see. Many view the pastoral position through a distorted lens. Pastors do not have a life of ease and recognition, and they do work more than three hours a week. The pastoral life has many ups and downs, Jared. There's going to be mountaintops in your ministries, in your ministry where you're going to have seasons of joy, blessing, and peace, and unity with God's people. And then there's also going to be valleys, times when you're discouraged, when you're on the brink of burnout. You might even have people who you love who will leave you or even turn against you. I've experienced it. I'm sure many of us have experienced it. People that you once counted on turn on you or leave you. Paul experienced this. He says it in this chapter. Demas, in love with this present world, has forsaken me. Demas was a companion of Paul, was with him, serving with him, would have been a friend. He left him. There are ups and downs in pastoral ministry. 
Paul suffered great loss from other people. He also experienced great suffering in his ministry labors. But yet he calls on Timothy to look at his example and how he's lived. If you look at this same chapter, look at chapter 3 of 2 Timothy. Look at verse 10 for a moment. And forward, he says, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, and watch this, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, listen to verse 12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, what's he tell Timothy to do? Continue in what you've learned. And have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it. You see, Paul went through many ups and downs in his ministry, and he calls on Timothy to do the same. Because not everything's going to be exactly as you think it might be. Being young, I entered one of my early churches thinking, oh, Things are going to go exactly like this. That's the wrong way to think entering a church. Because you're not promised things are going to go exactly the way you think. So what I mean by this, be aware of the reality of pastoral ministry. And that connects directly to this last and final point, and it's this. Resolve to persevere in your pastoral ministry. This got to be a resolution of you, got to be a resolve in you. Whatever season of ministry you find yourself in, continue to the end. Through the hard times, just keep going. When you're enjoying it, just praise God. When things are good, praise God. All, all blessings flow from Him, but so do the trials. And they're for a purpose, because He's molding you into a pastor that you ought to be. Brace yourself for the times of affliction, as Paul says. He tells Timothy, you're going to endure suffering and affliction. He says that, 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 2, 3. He says, endure affliction and continue to the end. And I think if we, we look at this, Paul himself is the greatest example. And I'll close with this last verse in chapter 4. Chapter 4, look at, look at how he closes this section. in verse 6 through 8. Notice what Paul tells Timothy. He says to him, after he's told him all about his life and suffering, Timothy knows what he's endured. He knows what he's sacrificed for the ministry, what he's done. But in verse 6 through 8, notice that he says, For I am ready, already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. He's not talking about a flight getting ready to leave. He's talking about his death. He says, I fought the good fight. I have finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who love his appearing. How could Paul endure so much and cross the finish line the way he did? Here's how. He loved Jesus more than he loved himself. He loved Jesus more than he loved himself. He loved God's people more than he loved himself. He was dependent upon Jesus every step of the way. And I want you to understand, perseverance does not happen unless you are dependent upon the Lord every aspect of your ministry. Always go back to the cross. Live and serve near the cross. The gospel must be your heartbeat. 
if you are to keep going. And ultimately, here's what we find with this. You are ultimately fulfilling this office of pastor not for any other reason than the glory of God. It's not about you. It's about the glory of God. Jared and all of us who pastor, we pastor for the audience of one person. Christ. You preach for the audience of one person. Christ. You live for the audience of one person. Christ. So the noble task of a pastor, so hard to condense into one sermon. But what we've looked at, I pray that these texts and this content have encouraged you, but also been a challenge to you. And maybe they've been a challenge to all of us. They've been a challenge to me as I've studied it together. So that's going to conclude our time in this preaching charge. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.